Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Now, tis the season. Uh, for Christmas traditions. Uh, I don't know about you, but in, in our household, there are certain kind of things that we do each year to kind of prepare our hearts for the Christmas season. Uh, there are certain movies we always have to watch. I know we all have them. For me and our family, it's Elf, uh, so kind of the classic. Uh, there's also Home Alone, which somehow snuck its way into the Christmas uh, season. Uh, it's actually the number one grossing Christmas movie of all time. Uh, fun fact. Uh, and there's also The Grinch, which we started last night. Uh, my son is 20 months old, and so we didn't exactly finish it. We'll finish it part two tonight. Um, but there's certain movies we always want to listen or watch, and then there's certain music we always want to listen to. I, I don't know about you, but I am a very strict post-Thanksgiving Christmas listener. Anything before that uh, feels just shy of heresy uh, to me. So anyone in here is kind of yeah, I hear some applause. Uh, thank you. Um, or maybe I just wanted the applause. But uh, anyone else in here has a strict rule on post-Thanksgiving only Christmas music? Anyone in here? Yes, thank you. My people, my people, amen. May your kind increase. So there's certain music we like to listen to to prepare our hearts. And then there's certain food that I love this time of the year because everyone kind of presents their love to you in butter, fat, and sugar. And um, I'm not complaining, you know? That's future Derek's problem. Present Derek gets to enjoy that. I'll leave it to Derek 2022, right? Um, that's his problem. So there's certain things that I do each and every year to kind of prepare and posture my heart for the Christmas season. And one of those things that I love to do is actually to go back into Matthew and Luke, the two gospel accounts that record the, the birth of Jesus, and just let my heart kind of sink those stories deeply into me. Uh, because the reality of it is, as you read those two stories, it's actually fascinating that both of those stories, though talking about the same moment, come at it from very two different lenses. Like Luke almost plays out like a musical. Like you read the Gospel of Luke and there's songs that are being sung. There's babies that are literally dancing in the womb. There's Zacharias who like can't talk for several months because he questioned Gabriel. And at a certain point, at the climax of it, like Mary literally just stops and she's so overwhelmed with joy that she literally goes into a rap about the coming Jesus. And so Luke is meant to help us posture our hearts and recognize that when Jesus came, he brought joy to the world. But then you read Matthew and the gospel of Matthew shows us the world that Jesus was born into. Because in the gospel of Matthew, what you see is that a pregnant woman was denied a place to stay. And we've heard that so often, but just recognize, nobody would give a nine-month pregnant woman a place to stay. Like, I know some pregnant women. You give them anything they want, all right? They are taking food and creating a human. Like, like that is, you give them whatever you want, and that, yet the world that Jesus was born into, nobody would do that. The world that Jesus was born into, the king of the day was so threatened by a potential threat to his power that he sent soldiers into Bethlehem after Jesus was born and had every single kid slaughtered. The world that Jesus was born into, the, his parents, Mary and Joseph, the, shortly after he was born, an angel warns them, hey, you need to flee in the night because there's some people that want to kill your kid. That's the world that Jesus was born into. 
And so where Luke shows us the joy that Jesus brought into the human story, Matthew shows us the brokenness of the human story. That there's something not right. There's something that Jesus came to make right. So where Luke shows a joyful world crying, shouts of celebration for the coming king, Matthew is a world that's crying for a hero, for a savior, for someone to come into their story and make what's been broken right again. That's the world Jesus was born into. And so I know this time of the year for many of us, we, we have different approaches to the Christmas season. For some of you, it's easy to celebrate the coming Jesus. There's joy that's going on in your story right now. And so it's easy to celebrate baby Jesus in the manger, nine pounds, seven ounces, golden baby diapers. Like it's easy for you to kind of celebrate the season. And yet for many of us, myself included, there might be some joy in your life right now, but there might also be some hardships, some hurt, some pain in your story. And in this season, it's actually pretty easy to just fake it. Just pretend like you have this joy in a world where in actuality there's something hurting in you. There's something broken in you. There's certain things about our story right now that I absolutely love. Like Judah, like I said, is 20 months old. And so he is just this like ball of energy and he's starting to kind of understand Christmas a little bit, like the lights and the, and the presents. He's starting to kind of get it and I can kind of see the world through his eyes in, in a unique and different way. And yet, as we journey in our story, there's certain longings of our hearts that, that we still don't have. There's certain hurts in my story that haven't fully healed. And so what do you do? What do you do when you're living in a Matthew-type world but longing for a Luke-type world? What do you do when you want to live with the reality that Jesus brought joy and yet you look around in your world and there's a brokenness there? How do you reconcile the hope that we're called to have in Christ when there's so much hurt and hardships in your own story? Well, the beauty of Jesus in the Christmas story is that Christmas leads to the cross. You see, if Jesus came to bring peace, and that means that the world was in a state of conflict. If he was sent to bring joy to the world, it means that the world was in a, in a state of sorrow. And so Jesus coming at Christmas was coming into a broken world and yet on the cross, he would take that brokenness upon himself. And so how do you have joy in the midst of the season or any season? We lift our gaze from Christmas to the cross and we see Jesus for all that he is and all that he came to do. Because the heart of God for you is to understand and to receive and respond to the joy that Jesus is and the joy that Jesus brought, and that culminates on the cross. And so we've been moving through the Gospel of John these last couple of months, and through the Gospel of John, we've seen these different movements of Jesus, that Jesus is entering into this world publicly, and he's declaring all that he is and all that he wants for us. But then it moves into his private ministry as he pulls his disciples together, and he shows them what love looks like. And now we're in the passion ministry, Passion is the Latin word for suffering, that Jesus would suffer on our behalf. And in chapters 18 to 21, we see the passion of the Christ. And it's been very unique for me as I've been reading about the birth of Christ and reading about the death of Christ and understanding that there's joy and there's sorrow, even in my own story. The other day, I just pulled out my journal and I just read John 19, where we're at as a church body. 
And I just read it over. And I just wrote out these seven different ways that Jesus on the cross informs my heart. That in the midst of hurt, he does bring hope. In the midst of sorrow, he does bring joy. And that from Christmas to the cross, God is declaring his love for you. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to look at these seven things that that are in John 19. And and, and it's my hope that we would see the heart of God, that throughout the entire story, God is declaring his deep love for you. That no matter the season that we're in, whether it's a calendar season or just a season of your life, you can find joy in the person of Jesus, even in the midst of sorrow. You can find hope, even in the midst of hurting and a hectic schedule, because Jesus has come. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. So let's see what he came to do. The cross shows us these seven things, so let's jump in. First, the cross shows us that we're loved. The cross shows me that I'm loved. Before we look at John 19, we need to kind of take a step back and kind of frame up what John 19 is, is about. John 19 is going to show us what happened to Jesus on the cross, but the rest of your Bible zooms out and tells you why that happened. And throughout Scripture, over and over and over again, what we see is that throughout Scripture, when God wants to declare His love for you, it always points to Jesus coming at Christmas, but then Jesus going to the cross. That for God so loved that he sent Jesus at Christmas, but God so loved that he sent Jesus to the cross. And so from Christmas to the cross, there is one centralizing reality of God's love for you. And so we see it throughout. Galatians 4, 4 says it this way, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law. That's Christmas. But he came to do something, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 1 John 4, 9, one of my favorite verses of the Bible says, and this is the love of God has been manifested among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's Christmas. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and has sent his son to be the propitiation. That word means wrath bearer on the cross for our sins. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that what did he do? He sent his only son. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so God so loved the world that he sent his son at Christmas. And God so loved the world that he sent his son upon the cross. Love will always send. Love moves towards the beloved. Love initiates. Love moves. And so when you think about God, and his feelings towards you, there is one centralizing reality, and it's that you are loved. You see that because he sent his son at Christmas, and he sent his son on the cross. In fact, as you read through the Gospel of John, the number one way that Jesus refers to God the Father is the one who sent me. 34 times in the Gospel of John, it's the one who sent me, the Father who sent me, he who sent me. What is Jesus trying to declare to us? That Jesus is God's declaration to you that you are loved, that he sent his son for you. Love is self-giving. And on the cross, the greatest display of God's love was 
put up for all to see. Love says, I will take all that I am and make you all that you were meant to be. Every time I do a wedding, I look the husband in the eye and I say, you know how you love your wife, you give up your time, your talents, your treasures, all that you are to make her all that she was meant to be. Why? Because that's love. And on the cross, we see the love of God, that he would bear the weight of the sorrow so that we would have peace. He would be cast out so that we would be brought in. He would taste hell so that we could taste heaven. The heart of God is a sacrificial love for you. And any thought that tells you different is satanic. God so loved the world that he sent his son at Christmas. And God so loved the world that he sent his son to the cross because God so loved you. The cross declares you are loved. And now that we have that frame of reference, let's see what happened in John 19. Because the cross is gonna declare and show that we're loved, but the cross also shows that this world is broken. John 19, you see the brokenness of the world and the sin of the world and the hurt of the world and the chaos of the world, and you're meant to feel it as you read through it. Verses one through three, you see the sin of the soldiers. They're mocking Jesus, they're beating Jesus, they're placing a crown of thorns shoved into his skull and they're putting a purple robe on him. All of these symbols that were meant to be symbols of majesty and they're meant to be here symbols of mockery. That you see the sin of the soldiers, but in verses four through seven, you see the sin of the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, that they who should have seen who Jesus is based on what he has done, who were longing for a hero, longing for someone to come in and rescue them, they see Jesus and they cry out, kill him the height of religious hypocrisy, the sin of the Pharisees. And in verses eight through 11, you see the sin of the political elite. You see the sin of Pilate, that he thinks he's kind of the one in control and Jesus goes, oh, no, 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 no. There's one who's in control. And fun fact, it's not you. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down. And at the climax of this moment, at the height of this insanity, Pilate is gonna take Jesus And he's going to present him in front of the soldiers, in front of the religious, in front of the politicians, in front of a watching world. And it says in verse 14, it says, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he, Pilate, said to the Jews, behold your king. Behold your king. If you've been with us through the Gospel of John, you'll remember that in chapter one, when Jesus makes his first public appearance, John the Baptist looks at Jesus, and you remember what he says? Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. So I want you to think about Jesus now standing in front of the Roman guards and the, and the soldiers and the Pharisees in this crowd. In this moment in John 19, he is bloodied. He is beaten. Isaiah says beyond recognition. And in this moment, Pilate commands us by God to behold this man. Behold your king. And as we see him in this moment, we recognize that this is the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world, the perfect, blameless lamb of God and the king of the universe that is entering into the brokenness of the world and he stands in our place, 
because that's what we deserved. And we are called to do the same thing from the beginning. Behold him, see him, wonder at him, marvel at him, and this is what we do. Verse 15, the crowd said, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And we're meant to read that in all of this that's leading up to this moment. And we're meant to see the horror of humanity in this passage. Eight times in this passage, it calls Jesus the king, Jesus the king, Jesus the king. And right here, we see what we do to our king. We see the reality that we have chosen a king other than King Jesus. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have declared in our hearts and in our actions that we have another king and we don't want Jesus as king. We have another king. Call him Caesar. Call him yourself. Call him your comforts. Call him your fears, your anxieties, your pride, your insecurities, your job, your kids. We place in the throne of our lives a king And at the end of the day, no matter what it is, it's ultimately simply yourself. I know for me, when I'm not walking deeply with Jesus, I submit my life to King Comfort. And I just kind of fill my life with just little creature comforts that I can kind of veg out with and maybe that'll give me a little bit something of that joy that I really want. Or whenever I'm just in, a, in certain meetings and, and, and I'm in certain kind of high pressure situation, I, I just bow my knee to King Performance. And I just sit there and I just go, will you tell me what I need to do right now? Because if I, if I don't get this person's approval, then what does that mean about me? And the kings that I bow to are the ones who actually hurt me the most. And here in this moment, what we see is King Jesus on display. And we're meant to see ourselves in this. You see, when the Passion of the Christ came out a few years ago, there was this beautiful scene in which you see the hand of the person holding the nail that was going to go into Jesus' hand. And in that moment, what you recognize after the fact is that that hand is actually the director's hand. It's Mel Gibson. And when he was interviewed later, what he was asked is, hey, why did you want to be in that scene? And he goes, because I was responsible for the death of Christ. And I wanted the world to know and I wanted us to recognize that I might not have been holding the nail, but I drove it through with my sin. And so when we look at the brokenness of this world, we have to recognize, we have to look in the mirror and see the brokenness within us. And yet the beauty of our Jesus is that he steps into this brokenness. That if he is truly our king, what would this king do? How would he destroy sin? without destroying the ones that he loved? How would he step into this brokenness and bring beauty out of ashes again? He would do it by taking the brokenness upon himself. He would do so by going to the cross. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in this way, shows as a present active verb, which simply means that it's an ongoing reality so that right here, right now, God is showing his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, 
Not when we looked good, not when we cleaned ourselves up, not that when we were good enough to be accepted by whoever, but rather while we were still sinners in our own mess, in our own filth, in our own sin, in our own brokenness, Christ died for us. Jesus doesn't give up on you. Jesus doesn't give up on you. City Bridge, Jesus doesn't give up on you. Jesus gives himself for you. And that is love. Love is when I don't give up, but I give up myself. And that's what we see with Jesus upon the cross. And so into this brokenness, what does Jesus do? He enters into it. The cross shows us that the world is broken, yes, but the cross shows us that Jesus enters into our pain. Jesus enters into our brokenness. Verse 16. So he... Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So the scriptures actually don't describe this moment a whole lot. It simply says they crucified him. The reason for that is because it was deemed not culturally acceptable to speak of the horrors of the cross in public because it was so vile, it was so horrific. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. They knew how to get every ounce of pain after, uh, out of their victims before that victim would ultimately die. We think that the nails didn't necessarily go through the hand, but in the Roman mindset, the hand included the wrist, and so it would have gone straight through these two bones holding them up. And the reason for that is because there's a vein that goes through that, that every single time it's even triggered, it sends a pulse through the rest of your body, creating agonizing pain, and that was just one aspect of it. There was an immense amount of pain, so much so that they had to make up a word to describe how horrific it was. And it's a word we still use today, excruciating. Ex means out of, crucio means the cross. So literally, we saw what happened there and we said, whatever that is, is in his own category. And that's excruciating. The physical pain of it all was one thing, the shame was another. And that culture, and like today, shame is just as heavy as the physical realities of it. And as you read through the gospel accounts, Jesus' beard was ripped apart. That was a part of the shame. He was given a crown of thorns. That was a part of the shame. And yet, as you read through church history and you recognize the reality of what crucifixion was, we often have in our minds that crucifixion was Jesus kind of high and lifted up, well above everyone, but that's actually not how crucifixions work. The normal cross was only about a foot off the ground. This was a very public moment. And it was meant to be shameful. Because people could literally walk on by and hurl insults and spit at you and mock you and there was nothing you could do about it. And yet into this moment, we understand the greater reality of what it means that God is with us. Because just let this sink in for a moment. He's actually with us. 
He who was ultimately high and lifted up humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death upon a cross, that he might be with his people. And it was in this moment, as people were throwing insults on him, we're told throughout Scripture that though he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Though they casted insults upon him, we read in the rest of the Gospels that he simply said, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Above every cross would be the sentence of the criminal, what they were being crucified for. And it says in verse 19 that Pilate also wrote the inscription and put it on the cross. It reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was public. And yet we know that it wasn't just public, but it was personal with God because he wanted to be with his people. It was public and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek so the whole world would know why this man was being killed. And so the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. Don't miss this. Jesus didn't die in spite of his identity. He died because of his identity. He died because he was the king. And this is what our king would do. He would go to the cross and he would take on the pain of the world upon himself. Because that's what love is. And that's what love does. Hebrews 12, 17 says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every aspect, fully human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, wrath bearer on the cross for our sins. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is also able to help others who are tempted as well. I don't know about you, but as I journey through this life, there's certain moments that are so sweet and so amazing, it just tastes like a little bit of heaven. And there's certain moments that are so hard and so difficult that I just go, God, would you rescue me from this moment? And it's in this moment right now that I see that Jesus has entered into our pain and he still does. You see, there's this beautiful picture that God's given me that in times of life that are hard or difficult, whether I see the brokenness of the world or the brokenness of my own world or the brokenness I've caused in this world, there's times, even this past week, that I've just sat down and I've just started crying and God gives me this beautiful picture in which Jesus is sitting next to me and he has his arm around me and he's crying with me. I don't know where you're at right now, what joys or what struggles you're experiencing, but Jesus wasn't joking when he said, I am Emmanuel, God with you. He has entered into our pain and that is what the cross shows us. And in the midst of all this pain, the cross also shows us that God is in control. Three times in this passage, verse 24, 28, 36, all of them say that this happened, why? To fulfill the scriptures. The gospel writers want you to know that this is not this chaotic moment, but rather that the God of the universe, the king of the universe is in control in this moment. And let's just pause again and let that bring you comfort. That no matter the chaos of your life, why you have a king who's in control, who can take a cross and make it a resurrection, who can take the darkness and bring light, who can take the sorrow and bring joy again. There are certain hopes in my life that I'm still waiting for, and I don't know if I'll ever get them. 
There's certain pains that just haven't gone away. And yet, in the hardest moment, I know that God is in control. His hand is not off the wheel. And the cross shows me that. And the cross is an ultimate depiction of what Moses said in Genesis 50. It says in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph saying this, it says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The cross is the ultimate picture of that. That what evil meant for evil, God meant for good. And it was used then to bring about the saving of many lives. And if he did that with the cross, imagine what he does with you. And the hurts and the pains and the chaos of life. Martin Luther said it so well. It says, God always accomplishes his purposes in a way that so subvert expectations. If you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, you know that that's true. God always accomplishes his purposes in a way that subvert expectations. The cross appeared to the world as evil triumphing over good. It did. And yet it was God's way of doing the exact opposite. The cross shows me that no matter how chaotic, no matter how dark, God is in control. He's sovereign. And he's orchestrating all of this because he wants to show you the very grace of God. He wants to give you a gift, not under a tree, but on one. The cross shows you the grace of God. It says in verse 28, after this, after six hours on the cross, marred beyond recognition, yet in complete submission to the Father's will, Jesus, knowing that all that was finished, said to fulfill Scripture, there it is again, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth, and when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. This is what all scripture has been leading towards. The culmination of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he declares this one central reality to us. It is finished. And so what was finished? Well, John Piper wrote a book called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. So if you thought seven was a lot, 50. But throughout its pages, he says things like the cross was there, Jesus came to die to give forgiveness to sins, and God, Jesus came to die to be a ransom for many, and Jesus came to die to absorb the wrath of God, and Jesus came to die to show the love of God to the world. There's 50 different reasons. Let me summarize the bulk of these in one central reality that Jesus just said. So, spoil alert, Jesus just declared, it is finished. Now that word is compacted with meaning in that culture. It's the word tetelestia. It, it, it's in the perfect tense, which means that it, something that happened in the past has present day connotations to it, tetelestia. You see, what happened in that culture was this. If you were a criminal being charged with a crime, a judge would take you to a jail cell and he would write above the jail cell your sentence, five years, 10 years, whatever you owed because of your crime. And at the end of your punishment, he would come back and he would write in big, bold letters to Telestia, 
it is finished. It is done. And how they understood it, it is paid in full. What you owed God for your sin, for your brokenness, has been paid for. And for those that trust in the goodness and grace and kindness of Jesus Christ, there is not an ounce of God's wrath left for you because Jesus paid it all. And to all to him I owe. You see, God so loved the world that he sent his son because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus came at Christmas. Why? To live the life that we cannot perfect in every way, to be a spotless lamb that would then be led to the slaughter. And on the cross, he who knew no sin would become sin so that we can experience the gift of God and the grace of God and the gospel of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is God's gift to you. And just like any gift, it's an object of grace. You can't earn it. He gave it. You can only receive it. We're in a sweet time right now just leading up to Christmas. And our tree has all these little gifts underneath it, like I'm sure many of ours do. And Judah's at that age in which he can kind of understand what a gift is, um, kind of. But I can't wait to give him the gifts we have for him. Why? because I love him. I know what he needs. I know what he wants. I know what will uh, benefit his life. He loves car cars right now. And so we got him a car car. Don't tell him, okay? This is between us. But it's my joy to give because I want him to experience life and life abundantly. And God has given us a gift hung upon a tree and it's himself. And you can't earn it. You can only receive it. And so what did Jesus finish upon the cross? It was payment for your sins so that you could receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. How did he finish? I love it. It says Jesus bowed his head like an actor at the end of a play. Jesus bows his head and says he gave up his spirit once again, nobody took Jesus' life from him. He so loved that he gave. And it's in this moment that the light of the world went out. The shepherd was abandoned. The life was now dead. He was cast out that we might be brought in. Forsaken that we might be forgiven. The cross shows you the grace of God in the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when you see that type of love, and when you receive that type of grace, the cross shows that Jesus can radically transform anyone. The cross shows that Jesus can radically transform anyone. Three different people in this passage see the love of God on display in Jesus and the cross, and they are never the same. They believe but then they're radically transformed. 
You see it with the individual who crucified Jesus in verse 34. It says, but one of the soldiers pierced the side with a spear to make sure he was actually dead. And out from there came blood and water. And so we see in other gospel accounts that these soldiers who were nearest to Jesus see the love of God on display and say, for God so loved the world that he did give his son. And they begin to proclaim, this is surely the son of God. Those that crucified him were never the same. Those that were cowards towards him were never the same. It says in verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he was afraid. And yet no longer, this coward became confident. This one who was fearful became faithful. He went up to Pilate and he asked him to take Jesus' body and Pilate gave him permission. So he took the body away. And I don't know how graphic your mind is, but if you're taking a bloodied dead Messiah away, you are literally covered in the blood of God. He is fully associating himself with Jesus, willing to give up everything no longer a coward, but now fully committed to Jesus. Those that were confused about Jesus were never the same. Verse 39, Nicodemus, you remember him. We've seen him before. He had a bunch of questions about Jesus. He was uncertain about what to do with Jesus because knowing to associate himself with Jesus would mean that he would have to give up certain social and political and religious affiliations. And yet here, Nicodemus steps up as well. Who earlier came to Jesus by night, he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds in weight. The cross of Jesus Christ was a free gift to you, but the cross of Jesus Christ was costly to God. And this moment shows me that Jesus can radically transform anyone. Because these individuals, though whether they were crucified or cowards or confused about Jesus, all become fully committed to Jesus and they leave everything to follow him. Because they begin to understand, when I'm associating myself with Jesus, I then become fully accepted before God. And so I will receive that gift, because that's all I can do with it. These individuals receive the benefits of Jesus because they believed in Jesus. So why show all these different individuals it's because it shows us that no matter where you're at in your walk with Jesus, if you think you're too far gone, the cross reaches out to you and says, no, I love you. And if you think you have to earn your way to God, the cross says, no, you can't. And so no matter where you're at in your journey with Jesus, Jesus can radically transform anyone. I was a Pharisee. I was someone who thought I could earn my way to God. And yet, in seventh grade, someone told me about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and for the first time, my eyes were opened. And all of a sudden, I realized I don't have to do these rituals to earn my relationship with God. God so loves me that he gave. And all I have to do is receive it. And when I receive it, God calls me to remember the gospel message. And as I remember it, I respond to it, not just with my lips, but with my lives. And I have never been the same. And that gift is offered to all of us. And so if you're in here and saying, hey, I've never received it, today is the day. Do not miss the gift of Christmas. Because the gift of Christmas is the cross. If you're in here and you've said, man, I have received it, then remember 
respond to and rejoice in this gift. Because what the cross finally shows us is that the story's not over. The story's not over. Verse 40 says it this way, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices and as the burial custom of the day. Now it was, now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which nobody had ever laid. So because the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The chapter's over, but the story's not. No matter how dark, God has a way of taking a cross and making it a resurrection. You see, I've been thinking through just the cross and Christmas back and forth this whole week, and I can't help but to see how many similarities there are in here. That at the birth, the the birth of Jesus, you have the mother celebrating life, and now at the death of Jesus, you have that same mother grieving. At his birth, you hear the cry of a baby, and at the death, you hear the cry from the cross. At his birth, you'll know it says that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, what's interesting about that is that when Jews would go on journeys like Mary and Martha was, they would take a, a, a cloth and they would wrap it around their waist for the journey just in case they died along the way. So after Mary gives birth to Jesus, she takes this cloth of death and she wraps it with the giver of life. Jesus in the manger is literally wrapped with the clothes of death. He came to die. And now right here, he is clothed once more with linen cloths, but these clothes will not be able to hold the giver and the author of life. At his birth, he was laid in a manger, and now at his death, he's laid in a tomb. At his birth, we sing Silent Night, And now here at his death, the tomb rolls close and there's another silent night. And so here we are. How do we live with the joy that Jesus brings in a broken world? How do we reconcile the hope that we have in Jesus when there's so much hurt in our own story? We look to the cross because the cross shows us that you are loved and cared for by God, and yes, this world is broken, but God has entered into that brokenness, and that he is in control no matter the chaos, and he has come to rescue, to forgive, to redeem, to offer us his gospel, his grace, his forgiveness. As we sit within the tombs of this life, we do so with hope, because the story's not done yet. Just like a baby in the manger The story's not done yet. And so we look to Jesus. We receive him. We respond to him. We rejoice that the Lamb of God became the king that our hearts long for. And we behold him and we celebrate him this Christmas, this cross, and throughout our lives. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org.
You can also follow us on social at CityBridgeCC. See you next time.